G'day dear listeners, John and Jason here to let you know that the Snark Tour will be happening again in 2016, this coming November. Are you excited, Jason? I'm super excited. I'm excited because I'm going to get to meet a load of people who normally I only get to interact with on the internet. So the idea that some of them are going to join us as we tour around the Holy Land and have a look at our Tanakhs and the context of the land and the food and the people that we're talking to. That's mind-blowing for me. I can't wait. Rabbi Tavia Singer will be with us as well as other special guests. So, Jono, someone's sitting at home and they're saying to themselves, I'd really like to find myself on the bus this year with all of my friends and my new friends and my old friends learning all about the snack and all this cool stuff. How do I do it? Yeah, well, you've got to go to the website. Go to truth2letteru.org. You'll click on Tanakh Tour of Israel 2016. That will take you to all the necessary details. You will leave a deposit and that will secure your place on the bus with us this November. Maybe around the world, and thank you for joining us once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter you.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. That's Jews for Judaism in Canada, the website, JewsforJudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobak. Oh boy, I got the rolling R. <laughs> Rabbi, yep, look, I'm so glad that you're feeling better. Last time we spoke, you had a cold. Yeah, I, w- I was lugubriously under the weather. That's <laughs> <laughs> a word I haven't used before. Ooh, it's a good and word. It's a good word. It's been in between the, when we spoke last and speaking now. You've had a birthday. You've had a wedding anniversary. Everything's going on, but you're feeling better now, so I'm happy to hear it. Okay. Happy days are here again. <laughs> happy days are here again, and we are continuing in our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking the question, who composed the psalm? What is it about? And uh, what's happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? And uh, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm? And uh, how does it deviate from the original intent? Now, we're up to Psalm chapter 3. And there are some different things about this psalm. Straight off the bat, the first thing I notice, uh, Michael, is that uh, this one has a heading. The Psalm 1 and 2 don't formally have a heading. This one does. And it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, (laughs) Now, it's an interesting thing, and this is totally off the track. I've been looking into my family tree, and I've been following my mother's maternal line, uh, and I've been able to get back as far as 1735, and this only just popped into my head. when I know, it's really cool, but that's as far as I can go so far, I think. And it goes back to Habersfield in West Yorkshire. G'day to everyone who's listening in Yorkshire. And I found out yesterday that it's through Absalom Scholes that somehow we're related to Mick Jagger. <laughs> what do you what do you know? <laughs> no. No, Absalom. Absalom is um, he is the son of David and uh, a son of David with uh, impressive locks, no doubt. <laughs> so we're to understand. And it is, and as I said, the the heading of of Psalm chapter 3, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, may I kick off by reading, not from this psalm, but by reading from 2 Samuel, just a few verses, just to put people in the picture. Makes sense. Okay. Well, I'm going to go from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13, and this is what it says. It says, now, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. 
And the king's servants said to him, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him. I'll just continue in verse 23. And all the country wept, all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, uh, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. Uh, there was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and uh, Abiatar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. And then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. And continuing in verse 29, Therefore Zadok and Abiatar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the, of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. Oy. Hmm. So that sets the stage. Yeah. You don't usually get as helpful an introduction to a psalm as you get here. This is giving you sort of the whole uh, story. There's no mystery about what this psalm is dealing with. No, 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 no mystery at all. Now, with, with that in mind, shall I read? It's only a, a, it's got uh, eight verses, Psalm chapter 3. Shall I go through it now? That's, why not? Okay. So this is, uh, again, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We've just had that. And he writes, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. Oh, you know what? I missed a word. It says there is no help for him in God. And for the first time in the Psalms, we have the word Selah. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Salah. There it is again. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all the enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, Selah. Michael. So, you know, uh, as opposed to the first two psalms, which are more or less philosophical in some way, um, except possibly for the second psalm, where according to at least one interpretation, it's dealing with, you know, the uh, opposition and attacks against Israel when David became king. But this is really, this gets very personal, this psalm. And, uh, you know, if you look at King David's life, it certainly was uh, a very difficult life, you know. Right before this whole rebellion of his son, his own son, Absalom, you know, you had the whole incident where um, Amnon had slept with uh, Absalom's sister, Tamar, and Absalom has Amnon killed. And then because of that, he, goes, he himself goes into exile for three years, Absalom. And mm-hmm. so this rebellion takes place sort of after he comes back uh, to be in his father's good graces. He, he seems to make up, up with his father. And then um, Absalom begins to court the masses, you know, as they're coming up 
uh, to Jerusalem to, to present their cases to the king. He begins telling everyone, you know, you're not really going to get justice, you know, if you go to the king. And, you know, uh, he, he begins to, you know, sympathize with everyone. And he begins to slowly woo the people over to himself. And then he basically proclaims himself the king. And uh, he, mm. he, D- David, you know, he, he smells the coffee and he realizes he's got to get out of Dodge. Now, let me, um, can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Absalom or Absalom, it, does that mean my father's peace? Peace of my father, my father's peace. Yeah. It can be, uh, you can parse but he wasn't at all, was he? Well, <laughs> <laughs> he, we, would, we would say in English he's quite a peace. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is basically as tragic and as poignant a story as you can come up with, you know. Uh, what's interesting is that this story takes place really towards the end of David's life. He's about 65 years old here, and we know that David passes away when he's 70. So what's interesting is why the book of Psalms begins with a, an incident from really the very end of his life. I mean, why wouldn't you imagine that the book of Psalms would chronicle, you know, let's say, more or less in chronological order, the the yeah, you know the story of David and so the the Talmud I really haven't seen any great answers to this but the Talmud basically tries to answer this um, by connecting this Psalm Psalm three to Psalm two that's why they say it's here they say that um, the rebellion here of Avshalom against the kingdom of David the kingship of David so the Talmud says that that sort of plays off of the previous chapter where according to one way that that chapter 2 was read, it speaks about the the ultimate rebellion in the end times between Gog and Magog against the Mashiach ben Yosef, the Messiah ben Yosef, mm-hmm. and really the, 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 the house of Israel. So, you know, and all, which really was, it, it, when you think about it, it it's an incredible, um, it, it takes tremendous gall to really rebel against the you know, the Davidic kingdom, like Avshalom did. And, you know, the, the, the attack of Gog and Magog is not going to be upon the people of Israel when they're at their lowest point. It's already when they're on their ascendancy. You know, it's when the tribes have come back to live in the land of Israel at the end of days. You know, it looks like things are, are picking up for the people of Israel. And, you know, it's, it's at that last moment that, you know, the forces of evil in the world make their last stand and they attack. And so the Talmud says that that's really the connection between Psalm 2 and Psalm 3, that they both deal with this idea of launching a rebellion against, you know, the, the kingship. Um, what's also strange, and this is raised by many commentaries, is that this psalm here begins by saying it's a song of David. And they ask, ironically, a song of David. It should have been called a lament of David, mm, right? Yeah. I mean, he was talking about, oh, this beautiful song when he was you know, attacked mm. by his son. Um, so the, the Talmud basically uh, tries to suggest that we know from Second Samuel chapter 12, after the whole tragic incident with David and Bathsheba and, and Uriah, that God, you know, is going to be telling David that, you know, uh, you're going to get it. <laughs> and he says to David in chapter 12, verse 11, that his punishment will come out of his own house. Mm. And so we're told that David at that point was very upset. He was sad because, you know, if it's going to come from out of his own house, David said, maybe it's going to be, you know, from 
one of the slaves in my household or mm-hmm. some illegitimate offspring or you know he was afraid that there'll be someone that will have absolutely no sympathy or feelings for David in which case you know he doesn't have a chance mm-hmm. so they say that David now when he sees that the threat against him is coming from his own son Avshalom, who really we're going to see later in the story, uh, or when we read the story of the rebellion, we know that Avshalom at one point sort of hesitates to pull the trigger because his um, advisor, Achitofel, who you know was David's advisor and then sort of betrays David and goes over to Avshalom. So Achitofel advises David, I'm sorry, advises Avshalom to sort of launch this very, very quick and massive sneak attack to wipe David out once and for all. Um, you know, let's get it over with. And had Avshalom followed that advice, he probably would have ended up killing his father. And But uh, he ends up following the advice of someone else, of Hushai. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he doesn't follow sort of immediately the advice to just quickly knock his father off. So when David sees that the rebellion against him is from his own son, he felt a tinge of hope um, in that maybe, uh, you know, he has a chance now because it's his own son after all. Maybe there'll be some sympathy or empathy from his son. So that's why it's not called here a lament but a song. Um, I think often these questions are better than the answers, but it's, it's an observation, you know, just worth thinking about. Just one more point here. When you go through all the Psalms, we're going to have a chance to do this, God willing, you'll see that sometimes it says, the David Mizmor, uh, to David, a song, and sometimes it says, Mizmor le David, a song to David. Um, often people just sort of miss that fine difference. Um, but you'll see many, many Psalms that have one or the other of these beginnings. And the question is, what is the difference between um, a song to David or to David a song? Here, in our psalm, it says, Mizmor la David, a song to David. And so, what uh, the Jewish sages' commentary suggests is that when the psalm begins by saying, la David Mizmor, to David a song, what it means is that uh, divine inspiration first came upon David, and then he began to sing. But when the psalm begins, Mizmor um, le David, which is what we have here in this psalm, what it means is that David first had to elevate himself by singing, and then divine inspiration came upon him. Um, so that's how this particular psalm is understood, that he wasn't all you know, filled with divine inspiration, that he had to actually begin singing, and that singing inspired him and lifted him up to become someone who was able to get filled with uh, divine inspiration. Because mm, mm. it, it is certainly a, uh, I mean, despite the circumstances, it is a psalm of hope. Exactly, meaning that you would think that, you know, after that introduction to the psalm, you're going to have just nine verses of Oi vey and, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's it's quite amazing, his his the way he copes, the way he, he uh, you know, his whole, his whole affect, his whole demeanor, uh, is not what most of us would react with. I wonder when I when I read this psalm, how much of this is direct is directed towards his son. I I, I kind of think that uh, little of it is. I, I'm reminded uh, of that heart wrenching part of the narrative when Absalom, when he when he receives the news of his son's death, and he he laments, "Oh my son, my son, my son," and it's so sad. It's so terribly sad, and and uh, clearly he had hope that. 
that uh, that his son would return to from the dark side of the force, if you like. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, he doesn't. And uh, and yet we read things in this psalm, like you know how they have increased those who who trouble me, how, how they rise up against me, and may may God strike them on the cheekbone and break their teeth, and so on and so forth. And I and I, I find it difficult to think that that this is something that uh, David is hoping towards his uh, rebellious son. Very much so. I agree with you. Selah. What is the definition of Salah? What, what does it mean? Do you have a, uh, an opinion there? Well, it's actually an incredibly difficult uh, word to translate, um, and there's not really a lot of clarity. Um, I found in some of the research that I did really three approaches to what um, Salah means. First of all, it only comes up here in the book of Psalms and in uh, pieces from Habakkuk um, and the, the the three explanations I found is that it's either a word that connotates forever or without end. Um, so it's sort of emphasizing a point and saying that um, whatever was just said should be forever and without end. Or it's almost like serves like the word amen, where it's basically reinforcing what was just said. And it's saying basically whatever was said is true and certain. Mm-hmm. And most of the more modern commentaries say that Sela is really a musical note or a musical instruction. It's not really even part of the psalm that was directed towards the singers of the psalm. Because when it says Mizmor le David, a song to David, usually it was sung in the temple by the Levites. And so the commentaries point out that this is probably a musical note directed towards the singers of the psalm. And it's telling them to raise their voices for emphasis. Um, you know, right. it's, it's a way of signaling them that this is a point, a place where you want to emphasize. And so, raise your voices. You know, say this, right. say it loud, extra volume. Um, and it comes up three times in this psalm, by the way, which is interesting. Mm. Um, and you'd have to really speculate why at these three particular points, which. Uh, is beyond my pay grade. <laughs> mm. No, it is curious, though, and, and it's the first time that it appears in the Psalms. Yes. Another thing that I find interesting, uh, one verse that, that jumped out at me, verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around, which just reminds me of the uh, uh, the geographical location of Israel. And yet, the, the, the chapter is about not so much the external threat of uh, of nations around Israel, but an internal threat, a very, very internal threat. Uh, how, how can we uh, parallel this to, uh, to, to perhaps something uh, in more recent history? Well, the, the previous psalm was really more about, uh, in many ways, the external threats to the, to the nation, mm. right? all the, the, the people that rise up against us. And, you know, that's a theme that will come up in Psalms. Um, you know, it's interesting that you have this idea of David as the individual, but we know David is also the king, and the king is always symbolic, really. He's emblematic of the nation as a whole. So, one of the themes that sort of uh, goes back and forth uh, in the Psalms is that whatever really David is speaking about on a personal level are things that affect the nation and apply to the nation. Mm-hmm. Both in the sense that they apply to each person in the nation individually, but also they apply to the fate of the nation as a whole. Um, so, in the same way that David has his enemies, so the nation that he represents has those who want to do away with the nation. 
Um, so really, that's that. I think it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Psalms has always been so uh, embraced by the people of Israel, because we find that it really speaks to each of us as individuals and as mm. all of humanity does re- sort of resonates with it on that level. But on the level of this is speaking about corporate Israel. This is speaking about the fate of the nation and what we face throughout our history. You know, are in the same way that David's life was so tumultuous and so tragic and so, you know, filled with opposition and hatred. And, mm. you know, that's been uh, the story of the Jewish people. Mm. Um, and, you know, we'll see that in spite of all that, David is always upbeat and David is always confident. Uh, and that's He's really. An yeah, and that's really, I think, the main idea of the book of Psalms. It's it really, it reveals the heart of David in his relationship with God. I mean, it's interesting that the book of Psalms is unique in the whole Tanakh in that it's a whole book where every single word is a word of basically David praying and speaking to God, David speaking to God. And, you know, so really what the focus of the whole book is, um, you know, aside from all of the, you know, the, 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 the notes that are played, but the big picture here is that this book is revealing to us the heart of King David in the depths of his relationship with God. And, uh, you know, that's really, I think, why it's in the Tanakh. You know, we don't need a a book for us here as a book of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. It's really a book that's trying to help us connect with the idea of what it means to have a profound and intimate relationship with God. And, you know, the, the, the relationship is often revealed in times when it's most tested. You know, it's, it's very easy for people, not easy, I mean, God forbid we shouldn't be tested, but we know that there are many people who, when they're tested, their faith uh, it gets shaky or is shaken mm-hmm. totally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you can't, you can't point your finger at people like that. We should never have to go through the th- kind of things that people have gone through. Mm-hmm. But David is someone who goes through it on the ideal level. And David is never shaken and he's trusting. And that's one of the, if you want to, you know, sometimes they have those things on the internet where they show the words that people use, and the bigger words are the ones that are used most often. Often, So one of the key words in Psalms is the idea of, of trust, of bitachon, that David is someone who just has an incredible amount of trust in God. Um, and that's what gets him through. It's very visual in my mind to uh, having, having been to Jerusalem, the, uh, the city of David, uh, looking down from there to the, to the Kidron Valley and then up towards the Mount of Olives. And you can see the, uh, the path that he has taken. And interesting that he has chosen to do that barefoot. I suppose that's a sign of mourning. Is well, that it's, either, it's either that or, you know, he had to get out so quickly he couldn't even put his shoes on. Or perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because it's not a trip I'd want to do barefoot, I can tell you that much. <laughs> they didn't have as many broken bottles back then. <laughs> no, no, I suppose so. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I can see it. Now, we also, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, would have a look to see what uh, the uh, Christian theology would have us believe about this chapter. But really, uh, as far as my New King James Study Bible is concerned, it leaves this one well alone. There's not even a... Uh, a New Testament cross-reference here. Is there anything that you wanted to highlight in that regard? Actually, I do want to touch on two, maybe two things where there's sort of an interface with Christianity. Um, sure. In verse 2, it, it's not clear 
is he referring to great people who are tormenting him or the many people? Because the word in Hebrew is ambiguous. Rabim can mean the great or the many. Uh, uh, so right. some of the translators will go both ways with this. And in the third verse, what's interesting is that um, you know those people that are tormenting him are saying that God would never save David. And almost all the commentaries point out that, you know, what's, what was this all about, really? I mean, uh, on some level, everyone connects this tragic story to David's sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. And, and people knew about it, by the way. It was a public mm-hmm. affair. And mm-hmm. so people felt that because of this, David was not worthy, and that, and that because of this, David would not be saved by God. And this, to me, is is an interesting question. I think that we've discussed it in our previous series. This word, Yeshua Ta, here in the verse, salvation, there's no salvation for him. You know, this is a word which Christians and Jews really see differently. Um, normally, if you go through the Tanakh, you know, almost all the time, you know, 99% of the time, it very clearly refers to uh, physical rescue, um, you know, people or individuals being rescued from uh, their enemies, from danger. You know, in Deuteronomy, the woman's attacked in the field with no one to save her. Or throughout the book of Judges, God raises up saviors to save the Jewish people from their enemies. It's virtually always referring to uh, a physical kind of rescue and deliverance. Here, um, you know, one could argue that it's talking about his soul and there's no salvation for his soul from God. So, you know, maybe this is referring to the idea of salvation in a more Christological sense, that someone will be saved from their sins. Um, I'm not quite sure it's a, it's a strong uh, case, because when we get towards the end of the psalm, in verses 8 and 9, it's very clear that the salvation this psalm is talking about is the idea of being rescued from all these people that are attacking him, mm-hmm. right? So in verse 8, you know, rise up, Hashem, rise up, God, save me, my God, for you struck all my enemies on the cheek. So it's very clear that in verse 8, the saving of David is from his enemies, and the same thing in verse 9, salvation is God's, etc., it, it, let me just uh, let me break there for a second because you said verse nine, and then, so in the Hebrew we have nine verses in uh, Psalm chapter three. In the Christian translation, my New King James Study Bible here, I only have eight verses. Yeah, the reason is that they don't count the superscription, the the the, the title as a verse. As a verse, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, okay, yeah. So for in a Jewish Bible where it says "Song of David as he fled from his son Absalom," that's verse one. Um, so I just think as a point, you know, to, to consider when we look at this very, I think, critical word, salvation, Yeshua, you know, is it referring to being saved from your sins and being able to go to heaven, or is it really speaking on a more terrestrial level of being rescued from danger and enemies? I think that in this psalm, uh, I think it, this, that the context of the psalm points to the latter, that it's referring mm-hmm. to, to, to physical rescue. Um, another thing that came up in terms of this question of, um, let's say, the, uh, a more, let's say, polemical issue is in verse um, 4. Um, in verse 4, David says, But you, Hashem, you, O Lord, are a shield for me, for my soul or my honor, and to raise up my pride. Um, it's interesting that 
you know, reading the Bible in English is often uh, handicapping. Some English translations will differentiate between the different names of God. Um, but many English translations just have God, whatever the Hebrew is. So it's interesting that the previous verse, um, when David was expressing the, you know, the, the, the claim of his oppressors and enemies, they were saying there's no salvation for him, for David, from God. And the word there is Elohim. Mm-hmm. And here David says, no, on the contrary, the truth is not like what they say, that you Hashem, you, the, all, you Hashem, this mm. is the tetragrammaton, yes. were shield from me. So in Jewish thought, the, the major difference between these two names is that Elohim usually refers to God in his attribute of justice as the judge. And a judge is basically not just fair, but is often strict. But a judge gives you what you deserve exactly. What mm-hmm. you, what you, you know, you get ninety, you get eighty nine point five on a test. You're going to get a B, not an, anything more. And you're not going to get any breaks from a judge. But Hashem, the, the Tetragrammaton, the four letter name of God, um, that's always referring to God in His attribute of mercy, of His loving kindness. Mm-hmm. So David is saying, it's true, maybe from Elohim, from God, if he was only going to judge me as a strict judge, maybe I wouldn't survive. But I have trust in God, because God is, his ultimate essence is merciful. And what's interesting is that you have here an allusion to this thing that we call the Magen David, the shield of David. Because um, here's the first time that, that David refers to God as being a shield. And mm-hmm. so it's a bit mysterious the symbol that we always look at. It's a very ancient Jewish symbol. Some people say it only goes back to the 1700s, but other people say that you can even find references to the 4th century BCE. Some people say it's around 2,000 years old. But it's a very... You're talking about the Star of David. Star of David, yeah. The six-pointed star. And we do see uh, that pattern in in various uh, rock carvings in, in synagogues and whatnot. Um, we find that it that it has been used of ancient time, but how? When did it become a uh, an emblem of national recognition? Yeah, uh, that is the question. Yeah, it's not so easy to know that. It's I mean the scholars debate. You know, it's interesting that many people I sh- I'm sure experience this that they find their socks disappear in their in their dryer in their home. Right. <laughs> um, I I have books that disappear in my library. Um, yep. <laughs> I have so many books. <laughs> so I had a book once by Rabbi Abraham Arye Trugman on the Star of David, and uh, I can't seem to find it. But I, 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 remember, I remember a few things. There are a few theories as to what it might mean. I think the best theory is one that was proposed by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, although I think that it probably was um, people expressed this earlier. The idea is that David never put his trust in his armies or his weapons. His trust was only in God. And so because of his trust in God, he felt totally protected from all directions, from north, south, east, west, from up mm. and from down. And so the six-pointed star of David really represents David's true shield, which is God. That's the mm-hmm. shield of David. God is the shield of David. And so the six-pointed star really sort of points to his feeling of being totally protected from all directions because of his trust in God. Some people say that the, the, these, these two triangles um, really form six small triangles. Those are the points around the central hexagram, and they say that it has a total of 12 sides, 
which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Some people suggest that the center point is the, is the Sabbath, and it's surrounded by the six days of the week. So you have many, many Jewish interpretations of what it might symbolize. I've, I've seen many, many more. Um, but it's very clear that it's a very ancient Jewish symbol. It's, it's been mm-hmm. used by Jews for centuries and centuries. What I found, though, and you can check this out, if you do research on this incredibly uh, sometimes unreliable tool called the Internet, uh, <laughs> you'll find that many Christians have what I think is an unhealthy disdain of anything that they can't find in the Bible directly. Mm. And mm. so you'll find that many, many Christians will assert that the Star of David is a symbol that's rooted in either paganism or Satanism. You know, I, I can assure you that if it really had its roots in paganism or Satanism, it wouldn't be a truly cherished, uh, long-standing uh, symbol that's been used not just by ignorant Jews, but by learned Jews. Mm. But, you know, the idea is that this is where, you know, David David speaks about a magain, a shield. Um, you know, and obviously here the shield of David is God. You know, where it went from there to becoming an actual physical symbol of a star, um, you know, it's not clear. But, mm. you know, the point is that it, it, it is a legitimate uh, and honored Jewish symbol uh, with uh, multiple layers of meaning. Um, it was used in Jewish mystical teachings, a, a tremendous amount in ancient Kabbalistic uh, mm-hmm. sources. So it's, it's uh, you know, I, I think that just to insist that it must be pagan or satanic because, there, you know, we don't find any Star of David anywhere in the Bible. Um, mm. It's a little bit creepy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just had a few more things <laughs> to point out. Um, in verse 6, um, there's an interesting dispute among the commentaries. Where David says in verse 6, I lay down and slept, and I awoke for God supports me, for Hashem Mm. supports me. So it's interesting, there are two ways in which this is seen by uh, Jewish commentaries. Um, One way, which seems to be the most uh, intuitive way of reading it, is that because David was so trusting and confident in God, he was able to go to sleep confident, meaning that you think about people who... You know, you know, they have to go to court the next day, and they can't go to sleep at night. Mm, mm. Um, so David says, "No, I was able to go to sleep, and uh, and I awoke okay." That, that that is one way the verse is read, but Rashi, I think, in a counterintuitive way, says, "No, what David is saying here is that he was so incredibly paralyzed with fear that all he could do was to sort of anesthetize himself mm-hmm. by just going to sleep." You know, just I, I'm checking out of here. I just, I'm, you know, I'm so. Mm. I mean, there are people that you know they can't do anything. You know, they can't even sit up and think. They can't uh, distract themselves. So maybe I'll just be able to be, just escape this. And that's not unusual. People who uh, experience uh, an enormous amount of grief, something terrible has happened, uh, whatever it may be, sometimes all you can do is just uh, retreat to your bed, pull the covers over and just uh, curl up and and, and hopefully uh, fall asleep. And then you wake up and the next day, then you are rested and you have uh, more of a clear head and energy to deal with uh, with the situation, perhaps. And, and I'm inclined to agree with Rashi. I think 
with uh, such a sudden uh, situation, an, an unfortunate and grieving situation that David is in, uh, perhaps at the end of the day, he, you know, he, he did retrieve to his tents. Uh, all he could do was, was sleep, and yet he awoke the next day with some kind of renewal, uh, with strength from God to deal with the situation. Is that, is that where Rushi's going? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, uh, that when you look at translations of this verse, you know, what is the connecting word between the two phrases? So you'll find that some of them will say, I lay down and I slept, and I awoke for God supports me. That's more like the first approach, right? That I was so confident I was able to lay down and sleep, and I awoke in the morning. But Rashi would have, or that approach of Rashi, the connecting word between the two phrases, yet, meaning, I lay down and slept, meaning out of tremendous fear and anxiety and Mm. grief and just terror, I Mm. slept, yet I awoke in the morning because God supports me. Mm. Um, It's interesting that, you know, this idea of retreating to sleep, you know, when you think about it in the most exaggerated form, it's often what leads people to want to go to sleep forever and take their lives, meaning that Mm. when you're facing something that is so overwhelming and you can't even deal with it, you have no, you see no way out, we know there are people who take their lives because they just can't, uh, there's nothing, nowhere else to go. And it seems that Rashi is saying that that's where David was at. That, mm. you know, you think about it, you know, there are four, I think, elements to this story that are so tragic. Um, first of all, David loses his political power. He was the king. He mm-hmm. was numero uno. And now he's been deposed. I mean, you know, it's like, imagine someone was working at a job, they had a great job for 20 years, and then they're given a pink slip. That, that causes some people to kill themselves. Mm. So David loses his political power. He's no longer king. And then, number two, not just he loses his job, he's in great danger of being killed. He's got, you know, people after him, and they, mm. have, they have the intent to eliminate him. That, that's another big problem. And number three, on top of that, it's his own son. Son's his son. own beloved son is the one behind this. Mm. And number four, if you want to just think of how can it get any worse, David was an incredibly popular king. And Mm. now everyone has turned against him. David is now someone who is despised and rejected by basically the whole nation. I mean, imagine how that would make him feel. You know, that that would be enough to, you know, want to check out. And so Rashi says, yeah, I mean, in light of all that, I, I, I was so devastated and so paralyzed. Um, all I could do was try to soothe myself and anesthetize myself by just going to sleep and just laying there, you know. Mm. And, uh, and thank God, because God supports him. He was able to get up in the morning. And I don't think it's only speaking about getting up from his sleep in the morning. I think, and again, it's a phrase that, that represents this idea of he's going to stand up after this whole affair um, because he's so confident in God. And so in um, verse 8, what happens is the the tone changes. In the previous verses, David was describing his plight. But in verse 8 now, he turns directly to God and he prays. Um, he says to God, you know, rise up, Hashem. Rise up, God, and save me, mm. my God. And, um, you know, he says, interesting, like, what does that have to do with the next phrase? It's interesting. He sort of turns now from his prayer and says, because for you struck all my enemies on the cheek, he first 
Order, order is a word of prayer. I've got, I've got for you have struck, which yeah, puts it in the past it is tense. It is in the past tense. Right. It is, and it's interesting that this has come up, by the way, I didn't mention it earlier in the psalm. He speaks about things in the past tense. As if, as if perhaps he's saying to God, you've done it before, please do it again. That, that's part of it, yeah. And part of it is also, you know, uh, sometimes people have so much trust that things are going to turn out, uh, you know, in the way that they're hoping they'll turn out, that they sort of speak about the result even before it's happened as if it's already happened mm-hmm. by thanking you in advance, God. Um, mm-hmm. So I forget exactly where it came up previously, but there was a phrase where it really should have been in the present tense or the future tense, but the Hebrew is in the past tense. And so here as well, it's in the past tense. So, you know, one way is to look at it, um, as you said, that just like you did smite my enemies in the past, I know that you'll sort of get me through this at this point as well. Or he's here praying, expressing his salvation as if it's already happened. Um, you know, that's the kind of uh, man of faith that he is. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, at the very end of this psalm, um, David says, salvation is God's, is, is Hashem's. Upon your people is your blessing, Selah. So there are two ways that um, this is seen. One is that he's expressing the idea that only God can deliver. That's why he's saying salvation is from God. Only God can deliver us as God mm-hmm. does with me. And he goes on to say that, and so he does for his people Israel as well. But Rashi has a very interesting take on this phrase, on this mm-hmm. passage. Rashi understands this. Um, again, for the listeners, Rashi was a great biblical commentator from France about a thousand years ago. He lived in mm-hmm. an area between France, I think close to Germany, but the, in France, um, Worms, I think it was called. He was uh, he had a vineyard. <laughs> Imagine nice. someone that had to work, <laughs> you know, in the vineyards all day long, and he has to write a commentary to the entire Bible and to the entire Talmud by candlelight at night without a word processor or a computer. Yeah, oh. <laughs> I always have a hard time imagining how he did this a thousand years ago. Probably also worried about the Crusaders coming to kill him. Yeah. His family, and so uh, so Rashi. Just to give you an idea as to what a giant Rashi is, um, there are over five hundred scholars who have written full commentaries to his commentary, meaning that there are about five hundred super commentaries to Rashi's commentary. Now, I can assure you that if I ever wrote a commentary to the Bible. There's not going to be two people who are going to write a comment, but imagine that some that people devoted lifetimes to studying mm. Mashi and analyzing every word. Uh, Five hundred people writing entire books analyzing his commentary to the Bible. Uh, quite amazing. So mm. the way he re- he reads this is like this: Salvation is God's. He says that it's God's responsibility to save his people. It's that's God's job. He says that's God's job is to is to rescue his people. But then he says, upon your people is your blessing. He says that it's their obligation. It's your people's obligation to bless you and thank you when you rescue them. Uh, uh. So it's interesting that we discussed this before. That in these psalms you have both modalities. You have David's personal issues and then the national issue. So David himself raises this here at the end of the psalm. He says, look, 
you know, I speak for myself as an individual because I was, you know, rescued here. I came out of this uh, alive um, and my kingdom was restored. Um, and so I do praise God and I do thank God. And, uh, you know, but David is saying, and really the, the people, all people, the whole nation, as individuals and as a people, as a nation, um, also have to be thankful that God rescues them as a nation, as a people, as a, as a corporate people. That's Psalm um, chapter 3. Are we done? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I praise God that we're able to do it. And I'm, I'm so glad again that you are over your cold and you've returned uh, back to the program, my friend. We'll be doing Psalm chapter 4 next time. But uh, again, thank you so much, Rabbi Michael Skoback of Jews for Judaism uh, in Canada. Jewsforjudaism.ca is the website. Uh, an enormous amount of uh, resources and, uh, and information there. So make sure you visit the website, jewsforjudaism.ca. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. And it's always, really, it's a great pleasure, a privilege to be with you. It's always wonderful to have you on the program. We will be returning soon to do Psalm chapter 4. Until then, dear listeners, be blessed and set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.